Hello, this is Katherine Cunningham, and you are listening to our Natural Intelligence Worldwide Podcast. Today, Lord Nicholas Stern explains why protecting the environment as our natural capital is an indispensable factor in the economic equation for sustainable growth. To learn more about our partners, our vision and mission, please listen to our pilot or go to naturalintelligence.com slash worldwide. Thank you for listening. I'm sitting here with Lord Nicholas Stern, who's the professor of economics at the London School of Economics, also the president of the Royal Economic Society. Nick Stern, welcome. Thank you for having me, Catherine. So you were the chief economist of the European Bank also for Reconstruction and Development, the chief economist and senior vice president of the World Bank. We've published more than 15 books, 100 articles. Your most recent book is Why We Are Waiting, The Logic, Urgency, and Promise of Tackling Climate Change. You really sit at the nexus of the development, climate, sustainability, and, and I, I think I'm going to add regenerative nature dialogue. Do you see a conflict of interest between development and the new energy economy? And if not, then what are the sticking points for those who perceive that they sit on different sides of that issue? We can have strong growth and poverty reduction at the same time as we protect our environment, protect our climate, invest in nature. In fact, this is the growth story of the 21st century. Uh, we will be investing in sustainable infrastructure that is clean from the point of view of greenhouse gas emissions, that's clean from the point of view of air pollution and water pollution. We can see how to do that. Um, obviously, renewable electricity with storage, that's a key part of the story, but much beyond that, clean transport systems, electric vehicles or hydrogen vehicles, we can see it all now and they're getting ever cheaper. And as we move along and make these investments, we will drive demand, we'll sharpen supply, we'll set off, we are already setting off a whole wave of innovation, discovery and investment. And the kinds of activities that are involved here are very inclusive. Public transport enables a society to come together more, enables poorer people to travel to work. And of course, clean public transport doesn't poison them right. along the way. Mm -hmm. If you think of decentralized solar, that brings electricity to people who hadn't got it before, and they're not dependent on an unreliable and often corrupt grid where people will turn you off and you have to pay to go back mm -hmm. on again. So you can see how this story of growth is one that brings opportunity to poor people, that brings health to poor people, and drives the economy forward. And there is no high carbon growth story in the medium or long term. It self-destructs on the very hostile environment it creates. So what we're talking about here, when we put growth and development and poverty reduction and uh, investment in the environment and our natural capital and so on together, is a very attractive way of growing and developing. The next 30 or 40 years could be very different and very much more productive, attractive, healthy and so on if we move strongly in this direction. So there is no conflict, quite the opposite actually. The way to sustain growth and poverty reduction is through investment in our environment by protecting our climate and our biodiversity and so on. So I wanted to ask you, of course, you're the economist that really brought the voice of climate change to the business community. In your review, The Economics of Climate Change, the Stern Review in 2006, we all know that 
It became a significant driver for putting a price tag on inaction and climate change and lifting the heads of many business and government leaders, etc. If we look at the nature deficit now, the price tag of inaction on the nature agenda, one estimate suggests that the total economic value of nature is $125 trillion. Do you sense the same kind of concern for inaction on nature among business leaders here in Davos? And also, as you suggested, this new business opportunity, this exciting narrative that we could co-create together going forward? I think the business community have gone further on climate because the story has been under discussion for longer. I think climate did start to move to centre stage a dozen or so years ago. It wasn't. I wrote the report of the Commission for Africa for the G8 summit, as it was then, in 2005, and climate change was Tony Blair's second subject for that G8 summit. The prime ministers and presidents there, and indeed the business community, didn't know what you're talking about. By the time we got to two or three years later, we had the Stern Review, the discussion of climate was moving up the agenda. They did know. And I think that really that's been clear for nine or ten years now as a prominent subject. That's not yet true of biodiversity and the oceans. And it's very important that that discussion of biodiversity and the oceans comes through strongly as well. Because these things are integrated. What you do when you cut back on greenhouse gas emissions, the carbon dioxide and the others, you at the same time cut back on the damage that you're doing to biodiversity and the oceans. You're not poisoning the oceans anymore. You're not poisoning the rivers that flow into the oceans anymore. It's a very tight agenda. They, they integrate, they interweave. If you protect your forests because you're interested in the climate, well, you'd hope you'd protect your forests in a way that actually preserves their biodiversity too. So, so many of these actions come together. And what this is doing, really, is saying that you know we could see that the cost of inaction on climate was very strong. Many of those actions will be actions around the biodiversity in the oceans. And it makes the case, which was already very, very powerful, completely overwhelming, because as we act to protect our climate, we will be acting to protect our biodiversity in our oceans. And of course, there'll be things we have to do in addition when we think, say, the oceans. I mean, protecting our fisheries is absolutely vital. Um, it will be part of a new diet that uh, helps you know, cut back on animal protein and so on. It will be our oceans determine in many ways our climate. So I think the bringing in of biodiversity and the oceans is something that's more recent, not fully internalized, but I think people are starting to see that that agenda is one and the same thing um, in its heart. There will be things around the oceans, things about biodiversity that we have to do in addition. But the answer to your question is not yet as well integrated into business decision-making on biodiversity in the oceans as climate is integrated. But the systems sort of thinking is really the way that we're sort of approaching these issues now. And I wonder, do you see with climate action, you know, there are many opportunities, big business opportunities with uh, the new climate economy, renewable energies and et cetera, whole new markets evolving. Do you see whole new markets evolving also around caring for, protecting our natural assets? Is there a, is there a sense of that nature is the fuel that drives all business? 
I think this is going to be a public-private partnership, but basically um, you can see the, uh, the economy as a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. Mm -hmm. I mean, we exist in the environment in which we live and we depend enormously on it. Clearly, the air that we breathe is fundamental. But think about the forests and take a country which I love dearly and that I've spent a lot of time in over the last 45 years, which is India. Now, India has wonderful forests and it has all the wildlife in them, you know, with the tigers right at the top of the chain or the pyramid. But India hasn't invested as well as it could have done in its forests, should have done in its forests. So what does it lose from that? Well, it has silt flowing into its rivers and landslides because deforestation has made the sides of the hills less firm and mm -hmm. solid and all the pollution that that can bring. India's forests are the home for the wildlife that tourism would like to see. If they invested better in their, in their forests, it would bring tourism much more strongly to India and that's a labour-intensive activity. It's good for um, the livelihoods of poor people. If you think of forests as controlling watersheds and water flows, it's infrastructure. Infrastructure is a set of activities that facilitate other activities, facilitates the water, facilitates the uh, tourism, protects against landslides. I think people now see the idea of natural capital and natural infrastructure. Well, at least they're beginning to see the idea of natural capital and infrastructure. And it is absolutely fundamental to sustainable development. And if we use the language of capital and infrastructure, we speak more clearly to finance ministries and someone who's been inside a finance ministry in my own country in the UK and has worked a lot with finance ministries when I was chief economist of the World Bank. You have to get through to finance ministries if you want strong policy. Right. If you lose them, you've lost a strong policy. You know, we, we had here President Bolsonaro from Brazil, for example, and he was promoting ecotourism in, in Brazil as an industry that he'd like to, to develop as well, and yet at the same time perhaps some of his policies are not aligned with protecting the extraordinary resource of the tropics. I had the privilege of meeting the Brazilian finance minister, and he was very clear about the importance of the forests to livelihoods in Brazil and, of course, to the world, but we were talking about Brazil. So I hope that is uh, sincere. I guess we should start by taking people at their word. But there have been worries from the campaign and what was said in the campaign about Brazil. Good that the words now sound a bit different, but it's very important that that is encouraged because it is a very valuable capital asset for Brazil and for the world, both. And the world can help, should help Brazil um, support that asset because it's a world asset as well as a Brazilian asset. But if Brazil starts to cut down the trees to, to produce more soya, to feed the animals of the world and the cattle, it seems to me that the world should know how the soy is produced and should know that the cattle depend on that soya. And you wouldn't want to buy a carpet made by child labour. Why would you want to buy meat which was reared on soya, which came from cutting down the forests in Brazil? Because that damages, kills children in the future. The same principle. So we should know. If it goes wrong, we should know, and we shouldn't buy that soya. And just uh, 
as you suggested, words really matter. When we talk about capital, and we talk about capital wealth, the capital wealth that we pass on to the next generation, what are we really talking about? If we think it, capital is merely, or money is merely a, a medium of exchange of value, then are we currently valuing the right things? Are we prioritizing those assets that are going to really allow us to create a, a, a sustainable legacy? Well, Kato, give me a moment to speak like a professor of economics, but I'll try to be uh, understandable. When we say sustainable, we mean that the next generation should have opportunities at least as good as this generation, our generation, assuming, of course, they behave in the same way to the generations that follow them. That's what sustainable means. So it's defined in terms of opportunities for the next generation. So what determines the opportunities of the next generation? Essentially, the various assets that they have determine the opportunities or the various assets available to them. What assets are they? Well, the physical infrastructure, you know, like the railways and the roads and the water and the communications. We call that physical capital. We speak of human capital. What does that mean? It means health and education. That's what is going to drive their command over resources and, and indeed their well-being more generally. So that's human capital, if you like, physical capital, human capital. But they depend on the natural capital. If we have filled the atmosphere with greenhouse gases, if we have cut down the trees, if we poisoned the oceans and reduced the biodiversity, they will have less to nourish and live on. They will have a more hostile climate. They will be battered by extreme events. Some parts of the world will become deserts. Other parts will become underwater. That is natural capital. It's real in terms of the opportunities that they face. It's real in terms of what they can do and indeed what they can't do. So natural capital is fundamental. And we also talk, and I think it's very important that we bring this in too, is social capital. Do we live in communities where people trust each other? Do we live in communities where you can um, live without fear of violence? Do we live in communities where the state is governed by basic principles and rules and, and so on, so that people right. can make decisions about their own lives? Do we live in a place that uh, is completely unequal, where one group of people dominates another? That's what we mean by social capital. So if we're thinking about the opportunities that we offer to future generations, we must think about all four forms of capital. And if we do, then it leads us to think about development and policies to foster development in a different way. So why would we invest in physical capital which destroys Natural capital, right? And indeed social capital. And indeed human capital, because if you poison the air, then people's health uh, becomes worse. So we have to look at our investments in a very different way. We have to make sure that our investments in physical capital don't harm human capital and uh, natural capital and social capital. But you also have to invest in those other capitals directly. And so we can invest in our forests and our biodiversity, and we can protect them and our oceans, all part of natural uh, capital. We invest in our human capital, at least I hope we do. I mean, we educate our children and send them on to universities and train them to do all sorts of things. So it, you have to think about investments. You have to think about investments in social capital. 
Are you looking after your institutions? Are you undermining the basic institutions of society, the rule of law and, uh, and so on? Or are you investing in making those, keeping those strong? So if you look at it this way, and I think it's good economics, it's not sort of anti-economics, it's just thinking about economics as it should be, the different forms of capital that shape our well-being and the well-being of people who come after us, then I think you think of investment and economic policy in a different way. Do we think that governments also, when they are developing their trade relationships with different countries, and so are they thinking systemically? Are they thinking about, for example, you know, in the trade discussions and discourse with China and the U.S., you know, one of the ramifications of, of those trade-disrupted talks is that the soy market shifted significantly to Brazil. So Brazil was able to then you know, uptake that, that lost market from the U.S. that China blocked. And that had, a, in a very f short amount of time, had a dramatic effect on the whole ecology of those forest ecosystems. Can you speak to that? Do you think that ministers of trade and finance are, are really integrating the impact on, on the natural resources when they're in these discussions? No, they're not integrating the basics of natural capital and the environment into trade anywhere near enough. I mean, when the US put on steel tariffs, on steel imports from China, China retaliated with the soya tariffs on soy coming from the US. And uh, so what do people in China do? They buy their soy from somewhere else. So they buy it from Brazil. And then more forests are cut down in order to meet that extra demand for soy. So a tax on steel imports from China has ended up destroying more forest in Brazil. And I don't think that that was thought through by anybody involved. And if we change the perspectives, we change the way in which people think about these things, if we change the discussion to real economics, not narrow economics that looks at just one little bit of the system, to economics that looks at the system as a whole and asks about sustainability, you're going to get different results and different policies, and you should. And when you get these different results and different policies, then essentially they're more long-term thinking. We're actually looking at how we can create a world for future generations. So can you, yeah. just as a final note, what would be your your one key message as far as thinking long-term, thinking about the future? Let, let me answer that question by quoting Bismarck on the difference between a politician and a statesman. These were in the time where statesmen were men, of course, but the difference between a politician and a statesman, a statesman is a politician who thinks of his grandchildren and uh, their generation. So we have to ask that our political world is populated by statesmen and women who do think about their grandchildren. And it's up to us, as members of the public, as voters and citizens and so on, to ask for that, demand it actually, and hold them to account for the consequences of their actions for our children and grandchildren. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Nick Stern, for being here. Really Ple happy. Pleasure, Catherine. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us every Wednesday and Friday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, where we'll post our interview for the day. You can find us at naturalintelligence.com and subscribe to our podcast. Thank you. Have a great day.